It's a great honor to join you by video today and to share the privilege of teaching God's Word to you. So, your pastor has invited me to share out of Acts chapter 20. So, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. I'm going to read beginning in verse 17, but first let me just, let me give you a little bit of context on what's going on. The date is around A.D. 57. The, the ship carrying Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of Ephesus. And, and from there, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come and to join him. Now, Paul does this for two different reasons. One is Paul is an intensely relational man. Paul is never simply fulfilling a job description, but he wants to see these men that he's worked with. He wants to see his mates. He wants to connect. But there's a second reason as well, and that is that Paul thinks he is going to die. And you will discover as we read this passage that his tone appears grave, his subject most serious, because his heart is fixed on Jerusalem. Now, let's read in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, and it's going to appear up on the screen. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now... Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I used to find hiking to be an excellent opportunity to share life's deeper issues with my children, and such was the case a while back when my son and I went for a hike up into the Pennsylvania countryside. It was a beautiful five-mile hike up onto a mountain where there was a beautiful outlook where just looked it looked over the Pennsylvania countryside. And so we made the hike. We were sitting at the top, and we were just sitting there enjoying the picturesque view when a Along came some college students, and we began to engage them and ask them what they were doing there. And they said that they had come up to, be, to go over the side and explore a cave that was down on the other side. And they invited us to come along. 
So as, as life found me that day, I was following behind a group of people that I had never met to do something I had never done in a place that I had never been. And, and so we're climbing in and through this cave, and we come into this area where there is an open chamber, and there's a light shining in from the ceiling. And I look up, and there's a hole in the ceiling of the cave, and almost as if it's the reason they came, the college students just begin, one after another, hike or climbing up the side of the cave walls till they get to the point of the ceiling, and then they, they would go through the hole in the ceiling. Now, at this point, my son is standing right next to me, and he's watching one go up and two go up, and I could feel his excitement and his enthusiasm. And by the time the fourth college student cleared the ceiling and went through the hole, he immediately turns to me and says, Oh, Dad, please let me go up the side of the cave wall. I want to go up the side of the cave wall. Please let me do that. And I'm trying to explain to my son that, that his mother had sent both of us up and she's going to be very disappointed if only one of us return. But then I thought, you know, we're here to build a memory. And so I said, sure, go ahead up the side of the cave wall. And so my son just immediately scampers up the side and makes it through the hole in the ceiling. Now, I should have predicted what was going to happen next, because it was almost as if the whole thing was choreographed. I mean, these all of these people that are up there put their hand through the hole, and they're doing this to me. They're saying, come on up. Come on up the side of the cave wall. And I'm looking up at them, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying to them, there's no way I'm going up the side of a cave wall. I mean, there's something about having um, a mortgage and a bad back and a second child that makes you not want to go up the side of the cave wall. And so I declined and I crawled out back through the cave and got outside and went up and picked up my son to where he was. And we were we were walking back down the trail and the air was just thick with disappointment. And I realized that I had gone there to build a memory with my son and I had missed this incredible opportunity. And so I just stopped and I said, son, we're go I'm going back and I'm going up the side of the cave wall. My and my son said, yes. I mean, as if to say, my dad's not a wimp. And so 20 minutes later, I'm, I'm in there and I'm going up the side and, and there's a point in the ascent where you have to shift from one ledge to the other ledge. And in doing so, you have to push off one wall and have your foot on one ledge and make it to the other ledge and then finish the ascent. And so I push off the wall with one hand and with one foot and hit the wall with the other hand and my foot misses the ledge and I begin sliding down the side of the cave wall. And so my body immediately goes into lockdown position. And I'm, I'm locked on and I'm just there in between the two walls. And the mind does funny things in a moment like that. I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm thinking, well, here I am. I'm stuck. There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only way to go is to go forward. But going forward comes at a great risk. You know, I, I can't just give up. I can't say, oh, hang it. I'm just going to fall. 
I can't stay where I am. Although it's tempting because, again, strange things go through your mind. You're thinking, hey, caves are the same all year round. They're the same temperature. I can send my son back. He can get my wife. They can bring the kids up. They can bring provisions. They can decorate me for Christmas. No, there's this moment where I realize there's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only way the only way to go is to go forward. But going forward comes at a great risk. Do you get the sense that this season comes with the same realization? There's no going back. We can't stay where we are. The only way to go is forward. But going forward involves great risk. To go forward, there will be a cost. Now, Paul is in a similar position in Acts chapter 20. I was confronting risk because I just didn't want to miss a moment. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I made it to the top and I did not die. But Paul is confronting risk because he's a Christian. Paul is confronting risk because the Spirit of God constrained him. In fact, that's the language he uses in verse 22. He says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what awaits me. See, for Paul, there was no going back. He couldn't stay where he was. The only place to go, the only way to go was to go forward. But to go forward involved great risk. The only certainty in Paul's life was the certainty of uncertainty. The only certainty was that there would be a risk. There would be a cost. I want to share with you today that the gospel imposes a similar experience of risk and cost in the life of every believer. In other words, it makes the same claim upon us today. In fact, the Christian life is, is this mysterious suspense where we are ever constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. And the more we understand that, the more we will come face to face with an undeniable fact, both for Paul and for us, and that is for the Christian, the gospel makes an audacious claim. For the Christian, the gospel makes an audacious claim. And I want to look together at what this audacious claim is. I want to examine what it was for Paul and then what it is for us as well. And there are three claims in particular that we're going to examine together. And here's number one. This is claim number one. It goes this way. Go forth uncertain. Go forth uncertain. Again, back to verse 22, because I think this is a great summary of Paul's experience with God. God creates this compulsion in him. He says, constrained by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. God constrains him in a direction. He sets him in motion, but he withholds what's going to happen when he takes that step of obedience. And by the way, this isn't a new experience for Paul. The, the thread of that way of God dealing with him began all the way back in his conversion in Acts chapter 8. 
Paul's conversion, I mean, basically one of the first words he heard was rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I mean, if you're Paul, you're like, well, okay, I'll rise, enter the city. What am I supposed to do? God's like, we'll get to that. Right now, I just want you to become accustomed to stop being the Lord of your own life and become more accustomed to following me in obedience. So rise, enter the city. You'll be told what you are to do. Acts chapter 13, the Spirit of God speaks to the, the team there. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have for them. And you're like, well, what's the work? And God says, that's not important. Set them apart. Saul and Barnabas, I want you going and we'll get to the work that I have to do for you. Right now, it's more about obedience. Right now, it's more about learning to think as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, it happens time and time again with Paul. Acts chapter 16, the Macedonian call. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And you're like, if you're Paul, you're like, great. Where? I mean, Macedonia is a big place. What do you want me to do? And God's like, that doesn't matter. Just get in motion, constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. See, that was a basic prescription for Paul's life. That was a prescription for how Paul was set in motion by God. And the thing that you and I have to wrestle with today is why would God do that to Paul? Because it leads to a second equally important question, which is, why does God do that to us? And I want to suggest to you that at least one of the reasons that that happens is because our uncertainty serves a vital plan in, in the process of God's dealing with us. It serves a vital role in God's purpose. Because our uncertainty becomes for us a daily reminder of our dependence upon God, a daily reminder that He is God and we are not. See, the existence of risk in our life reminds us of how much greater God is than we are. Because God doesn't take risks, nor does He need to be a risk taker. God is neither going because he's already there, nor is he not knowing because he knows all things. Do you see? The presence of risk reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us each and every day that we are not God. We are not divine. We are human. We are limited. We are ignorant about the future. We we confront risk because we don't know the future. We confront risk because we can't control events. We'd love to be able to control events, but we can't control events. We like to create the illusion that we control events. I mean, I, I, I lived in Philadelphia for 28 years, and every time there was even the threat of a possible snowstorm, maybe five to seven days out, there would immediately be 24-hour reporting on the snowstorm, on the possibility of it coming and with the effect that it's going to have. And then, and then adults would rush to the supermarket and they would be wandering the aisles thinking, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. I got to get milk and bread. And I, I don't know why that was. I mean, there's something about the threat of a snowstorm that makes you want to have, I don't know, a sandwich, glass of milk. What is that? I don't know. 
We'd be getting reports on what's what the temperature's like down at the airport. Who lives down there anyway? I don't know. But there's just this crazy mania because we want to create this, this illusion that we can control this, that we can control our lives. Because we crave this, this risk-free existence, don't we? And, and, and part of what I'm trying to say is that risk serves a central purpose in the life of the believer. In fact, risk kind of reasserts daily a problem that is first uncovered at the heart of the gospel, which is that we cannot earn salvation. We cannot will ourselves into salvation. We are not independent from God. We are weak. We are dependent. We fail. We have faults and flaws and failures, and we're fallen. And, and we must trust Jesus and all He has accomplished to save us. And here's what I want you to hear, because this applies to some of of you where you are right now and what you're going through at this very moment. What I want to say is God delights putting us in the position of going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen, because that experience presses us to trust him in a whole new way. The reality is that risk causes us to experience God in new ways. And listen, God is brilliant. He knows that, and so He uses that in our life. I mean, think about it. God's, God thinks nothing of saying to Abram, Abraham, He says, uh, Abram, listen, here's the plan. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go where? To the land I will show you. It's like, where? No, we'll get to that. I'll show you the land. I just want you to go. I want you to go in motion. I want you to respond to my word. I'm not going to fill out the whole picture. I'm not going to write in between the lines for you. You're not going to have it all. You must trust in a God who loves you and who takes care of you. But you must go because the mission requires it. Listen, I guarantee you that Abram's experience with God became far different the moment he walked away from his homeland. And I get it. You're sitting there, you're saying, that's crazy. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's, it's audacious. That's my point. My point is the gospel makes an audacious claim. And the first one is go forth uncertain. Here's claim number two. Prepare for difficulty. Prepare for difficulty. So as we're reading through the text, verse 23 now adds this additional twist to this audacious claim. Verse 22, again, he says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Then comes verse 23, except that I know, except that I've been told that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions Await me. See, Paul wasn't completely ignorant. He knew at least two things. He knew that prisons and hardships were facing him. I don't know if you think like I do, but I'm thinking, hey, if I'm Paul, I'm appealing to God. God, could we like change the arrangement? If, if you're going to let me in on something, could we either do complete ignorance or you give me the whole program? But if you're actually going to let me in on something, does it really need to be that Prison and hardships await me. 
I mean, this is a guy who, who, who lived knowing that in the uncertainty, there was a degree of danger, that there was even injury up ahead. Paul had a sense for the ending. He just didn't know how it was going to happen. It's kind of like on, um, on Star Trek. You know, have, have you seen Star Trek? Whether it's the old school, like Captain Kirk, Captain Picard, or the, the newer ones, I don't even know what the, what the captains were, but, but they were all same in one way. There would always be a transporter room, a group would always go down to the transporter room, and it would be all the main crew members, and then there would be one guy or one woman who you've never seen before. And so they would step on the transporter, and there would be like main crew member, main crew member, main crew member, and then alien bait. And you knew they were going down to the service for no other reason but to be devoured by whatever it was that was down there. And as you're watching, you're saying, don't go on. Don't step on the transporter. Didn't you watch the episode last week? Don't you understand that if you're not a main crew member, you're going to get chewed up by something down there? Because you have a sense for the ending. But you don't know how it's going to happen. Here's what Paul knew. I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen, but I do know one thing. There is a cost. It will be unsafe. Here's the thing. In, in a fallen world where we are not God requires that we put ourselves at risk. And we can deny that, we can try to avoid that, but the sooner we come to terms with that, the more we're going to enjoy God in that. And you know, this is really hard for parents to, to hear. Because we have ways of training our kids, where sometimes ultimately what we're, what we're doing is creating this expectation that life is going to be risk-free. You know, we, we take the, the legitimate desire we, we have for them to be, to be safe, to be physically safe, and we extend that to want them to be emotionally safe in all situations. And so we can work to protect them from being offended or, or having their beliefs challenged or to be emotionally uncomfortable in any situation. And here's the challenge with that, is that w Jesus kind of crawls right into the safe space that we try to create for ourselves at times, and he just disrupts it. You join a local church, and you're joining a community where there's going to be risk, because you're going to be sinned against. You're going to have to practice love at hard times in hard places. You're going to have to extend forgiveness. And there's nothing about exercising love towards another person, if you're using the biblical definition of love, that is safe. God doesn't promise us that. There's nothing less safe than love. The second you begin to love someone, you open your heart to being vulnerable to them. You open your heart to a lack of safety. But there is, I mean, if you're anything like me, you get this. There is this fundamental human drive that we have for, for comfort, the desire to remain hassle-free, to 
to rule over our life like God, to, to eliminate risk, to obliterate costs, to keep difficulties just away from us. And by the way, I mean, you know, difficulties and discomfort are virtually synonymous. Because if it doesn't assault our comfort, it's not really a difficulty, is it? I mean, what's the big deal if Paul was saying in verse 23, I only know that hotels and hot tubs await me. It doesn't seem to have the same impact, does it? See, difficulties by design strip down our comfort and violate our comfort. And in doing so, they keep us rooted in what really matters. And I want to be honest with you, even as I'm sharing this, I mean, this this theme resonates for me very deeply right now. I spent close to 30 years as the pastor in, in one church. And through circumstances I could have never predicted nor avoided, my wife and I found ourselves on the outside of what we had spent the majority of our adult life building. And I had a certain vision of what life was going to look like in the future. Can you relate to that? You know, you have a certain vision of what life should be like in your 40s or in your 50s. And all of that just just detonated. And, 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 And we had to do this big reset in life. And, 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 the, and, and my 50s actually became the riskiest decade, the, the most uncomfortable decade of my entire life, where Kim and I are living, you know, somewhat displaced and feeling like we're, we're in exile. And, and, and part of what I'm saying and bringing that up is to say, sometimes God doesn't even tell us, you're going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits. So sometimes God just says, you're going, not knowing. Going, not knowing. Actually, going, not knowing should be a banner pasted over the Christian life. Because that's what God leads us into. And God doesn't always feel responsible to sit down and bring us in. Hey, Dave, let me just explain to you exactly what's going on, because I know you feel a little uncomfortable and that this is an awkward thing for you. So let me just read you in. That's not how God chooses to deal with us. Why? Well, it's the main point of my entire message because the gospel makes an audacious claim. Now, I recognize that we can hear an illustration like that and we can think, okay, yes, the audacious claim, that's what I want. I'm ready to go without knowing. I'm ready to board a jet and go to Indonesia and and not know what's going to happen and, and die if necessary. Yeah, but the question, I guess, that makes it more relevant for us is, are, are you willing to go to children's ministry and serve not knowing what will happen? Are you willing to step up in the church and use your gift for the glory of God, not knowing what will happen? Are you willing to walk across the street and invite your neighbor or sit down with your neighbor, invite your neighbor over to dinner, do hospitality, just do something for Jesus and not knowing what will happen? See, Paul in chapter 20 of Acts is speaking within his role. The question I have for you today is, what is your Jerusalem? What does a spirit-constrained risk look like for you right now? 
And if you can identify with this, I want you to hear God's solution. I want you to accept that life is often going, not knowing. And the more we get that, the more we we get the gospel. Because the more we get the gospel, the more comfortable, comfortable we'll become with the concept of risk. Because it's the gospel that begins to to speak to things that makes risk hard. It's because of the gospel that we can step out uncertain, and even if we fail, because of the gospel, that failure need not define us. Because of the gospel, we don't have to live for the approval of men and women, and so that takes out a major reason why we don't risk at times. Because we already possess the only approval that really matters because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And the more that we live out of God's approval, the easier it becomes to live life going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. And listen, some of you are there right now. Some of you feel compelled by the Spirit to do something. You've sought God, you've sought counsel, and now you just got to move forward. Some of you may be in the opposite position. You, you need to be there right now. I mean, you're, you're too comfortable. Last time you took a risk, Bush was in the White House. Like the first Bush was in the White House. You're under-challenged. Lethally bored. Here's the prescription. Get going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. What is your Jerusalem today. Maybe it means reconciling with someone. Maybe it means planting a church for the glory of God. Maybe it means having a hard conversation that you've been avoiding. Maybe it means any number of things. And I think the Spirit of God is filling in the blanks among some of you right now as you're listening to this. And here's what I want want you to think about. Here's what I want to encourage you with. God loves you too much to allow you to squander your life in the gray twilight of ambivalence. And so he says there will be risk. And with risk, there will be difficulty. Claim number three, value the gospel above all. Value the gospel above all. Look at verse 24. In fact, let me read this. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I, I love how Paul kind of slaps on an accountant's hat here, and he just begins to assign value to different things. And, and I think here we see the, the true audacity of the claim. Because Paul is saying that he values the gospel even above his life. I mean, that passage in verse 24, it's, it's amazing. You read that and you think, can he really be saying what it appears like he's saying? That, that fulfilling the gospel is more valuable than even his life? I, lo- I love that this is coming from Paul. Paul, I mean, the only guy in redemptive history well, maybe not the only guy, but certainly one guy that has a justifiable exception 
for wanting to, to remain, for needing to remain, for having the church need him to remain. And yet he's saying, no, I don't, I don't consider my life that kind of value. The gospel has to go forward. And so value the gospel above all. Paul says, I value the gospel above my life. And then he also says, I value the gospel even above my relationships. You know, there's an inherent definition for Paul's success where relationships always seem to be in view. See, for Paul, he was never simply executing a job description. I mean, you know, you just read this whole section in Acts chapter 20. It starts out with him sending for the elders. He's, he talks about the elders, how he lived with them, how he served them with tears. We didn't read this, but on later on in verse 34, they're, they're talking about how they're, they're, they're out on the beach and they're praying and they're weeping because Paul is leaving. In fact, Paul talks about, talk about risk. You know, Paul says in verse 29 and 30, he says, I, I love this. He says, after I leave, savage wolves are going to come. And even men from among you are going to rise up and disrupt things. Peace out. You know, I mean, Paul's like, like, yeah, this stuff is going to happen. There's going to be problems. There's going to be challenges. But the gospel is calling me on, onward. Let, let, me just, let me just talk to the leaders for a second. Leaders, sometimes we think that the best way to honor God is to protect the church from risk to protect God's people. And, and, so, and oftentimes that means from mission, from, from mission risk, from mission extension, from, from mission vulnerability, to protect, protect our money, protect our assets, protect people. And I think it can be very short-sighted because we just don't see what comes to the church and, and what invigorates the church through the experience of the church taking God-ordained and God-led risks. Check out this quote. This is going to appear in just a second by John Piper. He said this, No local church can afford to go without the encouragement and nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. Now think about that. Think about how upside down that statement sounds. Have you ever considered how unhealthy a church becomes when it exists exclusively for itself? See, that wasn't the way that Paul was. Paul valued the gospel above relationships. He treasured relationships. He loved the people that he was in ministry with. He loved the people that he served. But there was a mission and he realized that the mission would not be satisfied if he wasn't willing to, to sacrifice at times even the, the proximity that brought he and other people into relationship. So again, it's value the gospel above all. It's an audacious claim. And here's a final thought under this point, and that is value the gospel above the fruit of the gospel. And let me explain to you what I mean by that, because I, I realize this is kind of an ex, a, a strange one, because we all long for fruit. I mean, in some ways, we feel like that's why we're in this. We, we want to evangelize and see fruit. We want to parent and see fruit. We want to have relationships and see fruit. But listen, Paul did not hold God hostage 
to see an, a certain kind of fruit so that he would then be faithful to God. Paul made the metric by which he measured his own success just being faithful. And trusting God with the fruit, being faithful and being obedient to God. You see, Paul recognized that there are some things that are so, so worthy that, that, that obedience is enough. Faithfulness is enough. Some things that are so worthy, it's, it's glorious just to be a part of it. Let me tell you a story. When I lived in Philadelphia and I led in Philadelphia, we planted a church in an area called Chester, Pennsylvania, which is a very impoverished area south of Philadelphia. And the church was planted by this heroic man and, and woman, man and his wife and, and, and their family and other people around them. It was, it was planted in Chester, which again is just this impoverished area in the south part of Philly. Uh, it's, it's urban, many risks involved in, in planting the church. And as time passed and, and that church went from two years to three years to four years, into its fifth, fifth year, the man who planted the church became persuaded, along with the others that were involved, that, that God was going, going to be drawing the church to a close. And this was really difficult because there were hopes and, and dreams. See, these are the stories that you never hear about when it comes to church planting. These are the stories that are never told. But I want to draw out a point to this that, that's really important. Because with this church plant, as with all church plants, there were so many sacrifices that were made. And yet on that final Sunday that that church met, at the conclusion of the church meeting, they had, they had a banquet. And at the banquet, they just decided they were going to eat together and then celebrate God's faithfulness and, and goodness and testify to the goodness of God, which they did for an hour or so. And then as that, as that banquet drew to a close, and, and the history of that church came to an end, one, one brother off in the corner just stood up and began to sing this song, Haven't You Been Good? Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me. Out of millions lost, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? good. And as his voice echoed off the walls of the banquet room, this holy hush just kind of settled upon, upon the group. And children began to get up from different quarters and began to dance around the room. And the Spirit of God stirred among the people that were there. And voices, they began to lift their voices, believing the substance of what they were singing together. And as the church planter soon-to-be ex-church planter, sat there, he realized to himself, you know, there are some goals that are so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. The gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And so, you, my friends, are called to reach your community, 
You are called to build your local church. You are called to risk an invitation to those that you're seeking to reach. You're, you're called to approach this next season regardless of what it holds, not with the demand that everything you do will bear fruit, but with the sense that it's glorious to even make the attempt. I wish I could say to you that the day of risk and, and cost are over. But I have a distinct sense that it's just beginning. And so, constrained by the Spirit, we are going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for each and every person listening. And I want to pray that you would meet them in a very personal way by defining for them their Jerusalem and by granting them clarity on the next steps that they should take. And Lord, that they would step out in faith, that we would all step out in faith, recognizing that there are some things in your kingdom that are so worthy. It's glorious to just make the attempt. And so by your grace, help us make the attempt. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.